0: Dramatic is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron.
2: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history, and now the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Just uh,
1: fantastic, my man. Uh, life's treating me good. I hope everybody's uh, treating you good on the other end there. And uh, looking forward to this one today. Got a pretty
2: long ride in this one today, and we're going to be covering a lot of different ground today. Before we start, Ron, I want to give a special shout out. I forgot to tell you about this. I happened to notice on Twitter the other day that we have a fan of the stud cast, and that is Kevin Kelly, who is the announcer for New Japan World. So the stud cast truly reaching its arms out all across the world. People wanting to learn a little history from the Tennessee stud, right? I thought that was pretty cool.
1: Oh, it is cool. You know, uh, now he's a commentator for
2: New Japan? He is a commentator for New Japan World, yes. Oh, geez. So uh,
1: does he live Special hello to Kevin. (laughs) Yeah, Kevin, thank you very much for listening, Kevin. I appreciate it very much.
2: Does uh, Kevin uh, live in the U.S.? Uh, you know, I'm not actually sure. I know. I, I think he probably commutes back and forth between here and J- maybe goes to Japan for the live shows.
0: Yeah,
1: boy. I, I feel good and bad for him. It's <laughs> <laughs>
2: probably a hell of a trip, right? I've so. been
1: there many, 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 on a couple of occasions. Uh, you know, that can be a great place to be, and sometimes it can be a little bit of a difficult place to be, <laughs> especially if you happen to be uh, standing across the ring from Brody and Hanson. That's true back also. Today. So, Ron, where are we going today? Well, we're going to make actually the fastest return trip to Knoxville with a second card in its history. So last studcast we ran Knoxville on Friday night, February the 13th in 1976, and we're going to return there in less than 48 hours later on a Sunday afternoon, February 15th. That sounds like it's almost impossible to do, and why would you want to do it? But the reason is there's a Saturday in between those two days, and we're going to get another television in there. So uh, we're going to discuss the cart. that's going to be on this Sunday afternoon of February 15th, and it's going to lead up to the next second Coliseum show of 1976. I'm going to send Don Carson and the superstars to the Knoxville and Johnson City newspapers. Uh, it'll be Don Carson's second trip there, superstars' first trip. And uh, and I'm going to send them with another ad. And this one is uh, an offer for... If they're black, Ron Wright's other eye, they get five hundred dollars, and that's anybody, not just wrestlers. I'm talking about anybody that would do it. And uh, for the first time in southeastern wrestling history, I'm actually going to get a story in the newspaper about Ron Wright's Hardway. So we will cover other cities during the same week of February fifteenth, nineteen seventy-six. We could talk about the crowds, we talk about the payoffs and the results of the entire week. We we'll break down the second TV of February. 1976. Uh, it's during a rating period, and uh, this one is going to be a TV title defense on this program. Be the introduction of the new Southeastern Tag Championship belts, and much more. And we're going to close out today with another great Learning Tree question. Boy, I'm really amazed at these questions. This one is a, it's a very rare hypothetical question. Had the attempted coup by the Knoxville Five not taken place in 1979? could you have partnered with or bought the Georgia Territory? With Southeastern on WTBS in Atlanta, might you have been able to halt Vince Jr.'s run to dominance in the year in which he started to take over territories and put territories out of business? I think that should be a very interesting one, and I'm looking forward to taking care of that one at the end of the show today. So before we get into covering the card. And the TV and the city's run, the payoffs, and those type of things. And the results of this Sunday's card that we're going to be talking about. Let's start today with the new addition to the angle between Ron Wright, Don Carson, and the superstars. And that angle had really popped business in Southeastern. Uh, the territory went crazy after this angle. And for those that might not remember how this angle all started, basically I had sent Don Carson to Knoxville and the Johnson City, Tennessee papers to buy an ad that made an offer to anyone, wrestler or otherwise, of $500 if they would black Ron Wright's eye. That ad was published the last week of the month of January in the sports section of the newspapers in Knoxville and in Johnson City. Then on the TV of Saturday, January 31st, Carson made the same offer to anyone, wrestler or otherwise, of $500 if they would black Ron Wright's eye. So on that same shows, that was stud cast number 133. Superstars took that challenge to another level, actually, and uh, not only blacked his eye, but they busted it a hard way on the desk, on the front of the desk, and uh, with thousands and thousands of viewers watching it. Uh, stud cast number 34 showed a photo of Ron Wright's busted eye. That was the last stud cast. Then in early February of 1976, I sent Carson and the superstars I told them to wear their mask. <laughs> I really wanted them to make an entrance into these newspaper, especially into the sports sections of these newspaper offices, and sent them back to the newspaper again. Uh, this time I sent them with that photo of Ron Wright's busted eye and with a second ad to run in the sports section that offered another 500 to anyone, wrestler or otherwise, who would black his other eye. Now, this type of thing had never been done in wrestling before. I don't think ever, anywhere. The second time Carson went there, the Knoxville paper ran an actual story in the sports about it, about how, how they'd busted his eye and kind of what was going on. So it was one of the rare times wrestling would get legitimate ink in the sports section of a newspaper. Uh, it was really hard to come by. And, uh, you know, I guess they got kind of got into this. They all knew Ron Wright. They had seen him for years and years. I think they thought it was all a big show, but then when they looked at the picture of his busted eye and then they saw the stitches and, and they saw what was happening, I think it got them. And they they were, like, intrigued by what the heck is going on here. So it's first TV that started the angle. Knoxville and every other city since had been selling out. It was amazing what had happened. In this studcast number one thirty five you'll see the two ads that I discussed here, as I said earlier, I don't know of anywhere this angle had ever been done like this before. We were coming off an unusual winter Friday night that had been filled with surprises uh Friday the thirteenth, supposed to be an unlucky day. you know it turned out to be a night full of surprises for wrestling fans in Knoxville in particular. Carson regained the southeastern title from Ron Wright. And uh, there was a shocking surprise that night when uh, Tora Tanaka returned out of nowhere and ended up with Homer's entire crew destroying my brother and I. Uh, we were already in a handicap match, the two of us against the three of them, Norvell Austin, Butch Malone and Homer. And all of a sudden, Tanaka shows up out of nowhere. So less than 48 hours after this event, this was What the card was on Sunday, February 15th, 1976, at 3 p.m., the Indoor Arena at Chihuahua Park. Opening match was Charlie Cook versus Jerry Myatt. Next match was my second cousins, Jack and Roy Lee Welch, taking on the Rugged Superstars. Third match was the returning Tora Tanaka, managed by Homer O'Dell versus big fan favorite in Knoxville in the southeast, Jimmy Golan. Special challenge tag match was me and my father this time. Uh, We're managed by my brother, Robert. We're going to face Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, managed by Homer O'Dell. There's no championship match here. It's a challenge match, basically, and it put my brother in our corner and Homer in their corner. The main event was a non-title, no DQ match between Ron Wright and Don Carson. There's a special stipulation on that match. If Wright didn't win the match, he was not going to ever receive another championship match for the Southeastern title with Don Carson as long as Carson was champion. So, uh, you know, Wright's pretty much putting it on the line here. If he doesn't get this win, he's not going to have an opportunity to win the Southeastern championship from Don Carson for sure. The TV program of Saturday, February 14th was a very important ratings period show. It's during the month of February, those four months out of the year, In November, in February, in May, and in July, all across the country, television stations were seeing what programs they were airing were getting, how many people were watching them and what was happening. And that's how they decided who they were going to keep on the air and who they weren't. So we're in the middle of a February and a very important, maybe the most important rating period of all the year would February. And we're in the second week of that rating period. We had announced at the close of the show the week before that Carson would have to defend his television championship trophy against Ron Wright on this second show of February. And Les also introduced the Southeastern Tag Team Championship belts, the brand new belts. Announced the upcoming tournament for them, which was going to be on Sunday, February 29th. And he set them up on the front of the desk for the entire show so that people could see those belts. And they were really beautiful belts. The show opened with the very popular Jack and Roy Lee Welch, who had not been in Southeastern for six weeks, but they had been there many times before. Studio crowd gave them a huge ovation on that return to action uh, after their opponents, Tony Peters and Rick Connors, got introduced first in the ring. Superstars soon came to the desk uninvited, as they described it, to help less with his commentary. <laughs> yeah. Les didn't appreciate that choice of words. (laughs) No, he he thought he needed no help with commentary. That's for darn sure. So the superstars focused on the Welch boy's father, Lester Welch, who had been a huge star in Knoxville back in the 1960s. Before him, my grandfather Roy and his brother Herb had been huge stars in Knoxville, but their focus was on Lester. And they really focused on the past history that they had with Lester personally and especially they had brought up that the fact that they had busted Lester's eye just like they had just recently busted Ron Wright's eye, one time back in the 1960s in Gulf Coast wrestling, uh, back where, as I think they put it, uh, they were considered to be kings. Jack and Roy Lee couldn't help but notice them sitting at the desk, obviously, with Les, but I don't think they paid him much attention. Their focus was s- smooth. They, they were a smooth tag team, Jack and Roy, and uh, their focus was on being a smooth tag team and the giving the folks a lot of action and the getting themselves another win on Southeastern's award-winning show. They were a great team, but le- they lacked the experience, obviously, that superstars had. Superstars kept coming back to that fact during this match. They kept going back to the fact that, look at these young guys. They're pretty darn good, but they, they certainly don't have our experience. The end of the match was similar, actually, to what the superstars were doing at the ends of their matches. The superstars definitely took notice of that when it happened. Welch boys ended up with a double submission, and they used their father, Lester Welch's favorite wrestling hold, the abdominal stretch. So they put an abdominal stretch on both Connors and Tony Peters at the same time. Then uh, the superstars uh, left the desk as soon as they got those boys in the abdominal stretch before they were able to give up, and they charged like they were going to go into the ring. But the boys, the Welch boys held their ground, and uh, they got a huge ovation uh, as soon as the referee declared them the winners. Then <laughs> them Jack and Roy, which they had some guts about them, and they kind of waved the old superstars to come on in here. You you know, you want to do something. Let's, let's get it on. And uh, the superstars kind of backed off, and they went on to the dresser room. So the Welch's went to the desk, Jack and Roy, for an interview. And uh, the after after the commercial break, uh, Les welcomed them back, and they asked him if he heard about the Ron Wright incident with the superstars. Uh, Jack said, as best I can remember, it was, it was news all over the country, which it was. It, it had never been done before. Roy asked if it was true that Carson had advertised in the local newspaper sports section offering a bounty for someone to do something like that. <laughs> and they, they had an interesting little discussion with Les and finished with how much they were looking forward to getting a win over a team as powerful as the superstars. But Jack said, and he was right about it, there was no quicker way to the top and getting victories over teams like the superstars. And he was exactly right about that. The superstars were truly a magnificent tag team combination. Second match on the show really got the crowd going. Rocky Smith was in the ring. He's the former Inferno, the one with the club foot, the best of the Infernos. And he was introduced. And in came his opponent, the Oriental Monster that had just showed back up the night before toward Tanaka his manager, General Homer O'Dell. The fans had no problem booing Tanaka this time. They had been scared to boo him, I think, in the early appearances. But uh, since he had returned and reunited with his manager, they definitely uh, decided they didn't like Tanaka. Uh, Rocky Smith gave Tanaka a pretty rough time. Uh, He gave him a heck of a match, as a matter of fact, and he had the big man down a couple of times. Tanaka finally finished him off with a couple of those Titanic chops to the forehead. My gosh, just watching them gave me a headache. Both Tanaka and Homer went to the set with Les after the match, and they waited until after the commercial break for the interview. Homer was again puffed up like a big old giant frog with Tanaka standing behind him like a stone. Uh, Les started off by asking Homer where his man Tanaka had been. Homer acted like he didn't hear the question, and he jumped right on Tanaka's opponent for the following day, Jimmy Golan saying how sorry he was for that young punk, Golan who really needed a good whipping, and Tanaka was going to take care of it. Well, Les kept chewing on the fact that there maybe was a problem brewing, had been a problem brewing between Tanaka and Homer before Homer disappeared. Les kept chewing on it like a dog on a bone, man, and asking Homer, he was aware later in the program, that he was going to be showing the match in which Tanaka had disappeared afterward, that same match that I just spoke of. Homer told him he should watch his mouth and then he returned to golden again. Homer wanted to talk golden. Les wanted to talk Tanaka, and, and Homer having a problem. Les kept chewing, asking what it felt like to have that. and he pointed at Tanaka standing behind Homer, wanting to get his hands on you, Homer. Uh, Homer got flustered and he screamed, shut up at Les. Couldn't, I guess, couldn't hold his temper much longer. And, uh, Homer said, you should mind your own business, Thatcher. Got up unexpectedly, and they left the set with Tanaka. The fans loved it and laughed at him on the way out. Les teased the upcoming video again, saying this video is going to be shown later. was recorded three weeks ago and had a story of its own to tell.
2: Put in a position as a promoter where uh, Tanaka had to unexpectedly leave, and so you worked the deal out where uh, he kind of had the uh, kerfluffle with uh Homer Odell. So, when he comes back, when he's available, did you give any consideration to keeping him as a character babyface or had you decided right away that you wanted to have him back with Homer? Well, he's going to become a babyface
1: and he's going to be a damn good one when it happens. But he didn't have enough heat yet. I felt like uh, when he came back that I would have been doing it too quickly. Okay. I wanted to get him over as a heel. I think in order for a heel to become a great babyface, he has to have tremendous heat. And, and the longer he has that heat, the better he's going to be over as a baby face. And Tanaka had only been there for three or four weeks, and then he disappeared. And if he came back and all of a sudden he's a baby face, I don't think his baby face turn would have had the impact that it did by keeping him as a heel. Okay, fair enough. What's next? Well, the personality profile was next on this program, and it was live again. It had my father, myself, and Robert on it. The entire profile was based upon the video from the night before when Tanaka, uh, gone for three weeks, showed back up unexpectedly, and got involved in the handicap tag match between Rob and I and Austin Malone and Homer. It was uh, the two of us against the three of them. Our dad had not had a chance to see this video, obviously. It showed us basically tearing Homer apart during the course of the video. We threw him out of the ring over the top rope, as a matter of fact. Uh, Then we got on Austin, took care of him. We threw him out of the ring, and then we finally grabbed Butch Malone, and we used that pretty nasty-looking finish we had. Uh, Robert backdropped him, and I caught him in the air upside down and dropped him on his head. And then uh, before I could pin Malone, Tanaka hits the ring from out of nowhere. Nobody expected them. It's one of those... Things finished that the crowd just went totally silent. They did not expect this to happen. And it also showed how the four of them became four on two rather than three on two once Tanaka's in there. They got Rob and I both bleeding, and uh, they left the ring after being disqualified. The match the following afternoon was to be our father and myself, managed by Robert, versus Austin and Malone, managed by Homer O'Dell. And my dad said something to the effect that, you know, after watching this video, he said, I kind of understand why you guys are all patched up here today. He said, I didn't know what happened. I didn't want to ask you about it because I didn't want to embarrass you. But he says, I can see uh, why you got got all patched up. So uh, he said this time was going to be at least three on three. If the managers got involved in the match, it was going to be a three on three. It wasn't going to be a handicap. And then I think he he brought up a great point. He said, if Tanaka wants to get involved then, he goes, there's three more Welch family members on this card. You got Jimmy Golden, who's a member of the Welch family. You got Jack and Roy Lee Welch on this card. He says, "It, it could be six on four here before it's all over. You know, so the live audience, they erupted on that. They really liked it. I hadn't even thought of that myself. Rob and I made some comments. But the profile ended with as another great personality profile. That is live profiles and the fan reactions to all the talk and uh, watching the videos was just the way to do it. Seemed like third TV match was introduced by Phil Rainey, It was Dennis Hall and Jerry Stubbs in a match. The audience uh, responded to uh, uh, they you know they they really didn't like the next trio that was entering the ring. And that was Homer paraded in his Tennessee Tag Champions into the studio. And this was a very good television match. Hall and Stubbs looked like a strong and experienced team. And uh, they looked like they'd been wrestling together for years. Austin and Malone weren't going to be denied, though. And they took the victory in probably just about just a little over 10 minutes. Homer and his boys went to the set. Les immediately called for the video he had alluded to earlier when Homer walked off the set. Homer didn't like it. He called for the director to stop the video. Naturally, Les didn't, and it continued. Homer kept asking Les why he wanted so badly to show this. Les just kept his focus, describing the action when Tanaka was about to go after Homer. Then after Malone, then after Austin, and finally Tanaka went back to get Homer again. The longer it went, the madder Homer got at Les. They accused him of trying to create problems among his men here. You know, and, uh, and he finally got up again, second time before the video ended and left the set. Austin and Malone followed him. Robert, Dad, and I went out to cover the two minute interview that was, that was supposed to have been Homer and his boys. Dad and I talked about the fact that this wasn't a championship match and it didn't make any difference to us. He had seen enough in the personality profile to make it clear this was probably going to be some more blood in this match, too, and, and he looked forward to being a part of it. The last match on the show was the one everybody had been waiting on. Don Carson defending his Southeastern TV Championship trophy against Ron Wright. There were about 15 minutes left in time remaining in the show. Phil Rainey entered the ring for the introduction. Ring assistant handed him the huge Southeastern trophy over the top rope. Phil was not a very tall guy. The trophy standing next to him was as tall as he was when he began his introduction of the match. First came Don Carson. The defending TV champion entered the studio wearing his Southeastern Championship belt. Crowd burned him with booze. Man, I mean, they just—they were waiting on him. There was no doubt who the fans were going to support. Then Ron Wright was introduced next, and he entered to a huge roar. Everything they did in the match got over. Fans were so into it that the 15 minutes went by, it seemed like, in no time at all. At the very end, the superstars came into the studio when Carson was about to get beat. The crowd went nuts, obviously. Jack and Roy Lee Welch, they entered the studio and stood in the same area for a couple of seconds. The reaction of the fans in went up another level. Then they got into it on the floor. They were fighting right by the ring side of the ring in the ref that turned his attention toward the four guys on the floor and walked over like he was trying to get that fight under control and get them to clear the studio. Carson loaded his glove. Great time for it. Referee's not looking. And then they all right. Right went down. Carson covered him. But the ref was still trying to stop the fight on the floor. Carson made an imaginary three count himself, like he's going to count out uh, Ron Wright and win the match right there. But then he realized, well, I got to go get the ref. you know. So Carson grabbed the ref from behind. And uh, the ref still leaning through the ropes, trying to get the guys on the floor to, to stop fighting and get out of there. And Wright crawled over behind old Carson, just about the same time that Carson got the ref's attention. And then Wright reached up, crotched Carson from behind, rolled him backward, and pinned him. The ref was right there, counted Carson out. The roof came off the studio. Carson rolled out of the ring. And uh, both he and the superstars left the studio. The Welch boys rolled inside the ring, and boy, what a celebration began. Uh, they got right up on his feet. TV trophy was given to Wright by the ref and the celebration began. Uh, Jimmy Golan and Charlie Cook and, heck, Rob and myself, we all went into the ring with Wright, into the studio and right into the ring with old Ron. There, the crowd was just going crazy. They loved the fact that Ron Wright had finally gotten some type of win over Carson. Uh, Les came around the desk and uh, even congratulated uh, Wright in front of the set in the desk. Uh, so it was like pandemonium in the studio. It was one of the biggest endings in Southeastern TV wrestling history, at least at that point. After our babyface group cleared the studio, Carson the superstars showed up for the last word, obviously. They were screaming as loud as they could, but I couldn't hear a single word they were saying up in the control room. It was like useless. Their interview was basically useless. The studio crowd was just on fire. Finally, Carson and the superstars, they gave up, you know, and then... And Les closed out the show with a special announcement about next week's TV, which we were doing every television program. It was important. And uh, he announced that the next television program would have a Tennessee Tag Championship match on it with Austin and Malone, and they'd be defending against Robert and I. We got another pop from the crowd, obviously, and and, uh, the rest is history. Pretty
2: darn good television program. Okay, Ron, why don't we now uh, go to David Summers as he discusses Super Stud Cast number 26 as the Tennessee stud talks to Southeastern's very first Lord Humongous, Jeff Van Camp.
0: Super Studcast number 26 part 1 available now is the fantastic story of the creation of a wrestling gimmick that has been called one of the top 5 of all time. Anyone who ever experienced the huge 6 foot 6 315 pound Jeff Van Camp dressed as the Lord Humongous can tell you the horrifying story or you can hear it for yourself from the man who created it, the Tennessee Stud and the man who became it at tnstud.com Patreon.com studcast. This three-hour horror story of wrestling history began with Jeff Van Camp and ended with one of the most feared wrestlers of all time, Sid Vicious. These two were scary enough without the hockey mask and outfit, but in them, they sent fans all over the South into hysteria. The Lord Humongous became the backbone of one of the studs stable. A group of wrestlers during the mid-80s gathered to make Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, the greatest manager of all time. Fascinating story became professional wrestling history at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast on Tuesday, February 25th. Saddle up and beware the Lord humongous.
2: Okay, we thank David Summers. Ron, where are we going next? Well,
1: let's talk about the city's run and the size of the crowd for the week of February 15th, 1976. We started out in Knoxville on Sunday afternoon that we just talked about with another 4,000 screaming fans. And this was the third full building in a row there. Uh, Monday was in Oneida, Tennessee, in a high school gym with about 2,000 people. Tuesday in Johnson City, Tennessee, we packed 2,500 into that building there again. And there again, it was the second time that that building had been full. Well, Wednesday, we returned to Middlesburg, Kentucky, the National Guard Army there had about 2,000 there. Friday, we were in Harriman, Tennessee for the first time in Southeastern's history. And we're at a high school gym there, and it had almost 2,000 people. Saturday, we're in Harlan, Kentucky again in that big old beautiful high school gymnasium that they had there. Well, it wasn't full, but it was around 2,300, and that building's going to hold 3,000 or a little bit more. Another Southeastern record, actually. For the week, 14,000 fans packed the buildings that week for a total gross of about 42000 Total payroll was $12,000. Uh, there were 16 wrestlers and one referee per show for the week. We had added two wrestlers uh, with the return of Tanaka, had to have another wrestler to wrestle him, and we also added another match to all those cards for that week. So we went from four matches to five matches. We were adding value to every card with that fifth match. Now, and I was finally seeing enough growth in the houses and starting to fill most buildings. That soon was going to lead to what it should have led to in any wrestling company. It was going to lead to a price increase because if you've filled your buildings up and you can't make your building any bigger, then you've got to charge a little more money to be able to uh, to make it work as it should. And so the average of every guy for that week was seven hundred dollars a man. That was an average. Some of those guys made a thousand. Some of them made five hundred. But uh, it averaged out to seven hundred a man. And that seven hundred a man in today's money would have been a three thousand dollar week. So it's a pretty darn good week for a young company that's uh, just more than uh, fourteen months, fifteen months into its existence, and being able to pay that kind of money to guys. Uh, we're we're starting to to really gain some traction in Southeastern at this point. We need to finish the week of February 15th with the results of that Sunday card that we just talked about. Charlie Cook got a win over Jerry Myatt and uh, Jack and Roy Welch. They had a fantastic 30-minute time limit draw with the superstars. And at the end of that match, there wasn't a person sitting in that building. I mean, that was a fantastic match. And uh, it was a tribute to the superstars, but it was also a tribute to Jack and Roy they hadn't been, uh, wrestling together that much and then in, in, uh, lately, and uh, they, they really hung in there. 30 minute time limit. They made it to the time limit and was just about to win when it was over. Jimmy Golden lost a real thriller to Tora Tanaka. And actually, Homer had to get involved to get that win for Tanaka. Jimmy looked really, really good in the process. Uh, Ron Wright beat Don Carson in that no DQ, no non title match. So, uh, by doing so, obviously, he retained the ability for another championship try in the future against Don Carson. So this one was really a bloody match, man. And uh, we're going to bring that back the following weeks in the cage because the following week we're going to back into the Knoxville Coliseum. Tag match between my dad, myself, and Rob managing against Austin and Malone with Homer managing was just absolutely wild. Referee had to be carried from the ring when it was all over. Both managers got involved. There were six people fighting in the ring for probably the last uh, five five to eight minutes of the match. There was no winner. Uh, Everyone was disqualified. That match would also return the following Sunday to the Coliseum and say, this time it's going to be all six of us in the ring, and it's going to be Texas death match rules. And there's a huge card for that next show in the Coliseum of seven matches in all.
2: Ron, you know what time it is? It's time for me to get a nice glass of iced tea, sit under that learning tree. Ron, where are we going today with the learning tree?
1: Well, our learning tree question today is a very, very interesting one. It comes from a gentleman named Chris Stewart, and he asks a hypothetical question. Uh, Had the attempted coup by the Knoxville Five not taken place in 79, could I have partnered with or bought the Georgia Territory? You know, I think in his mind, he was trying to envision how different things could have been if Southeastern had ended up on WTBS and Atlanta. And, uh, you know, his question was, might it have halted uh, Vince Jr.'s march to dominance in a big way? Great question. I'm going to take a run at it. I think if uh, if something you envisioned here, had happened in the early 1980s and both Barnett, Jim Barnett, and I had known what Vince Jr.'s idea for the future of wrestling was, and I had bought into the Georgia territory, Vince Jr. would have never considered even trying what he did, and wrestling would have been entirely different today than what it is. So there's a lot of parts to this answer and a lot of ifs in in this question. So let's start with my two Southeastern companies. Had the attempted coup by the Knoxville Five not occurred, I would have owned two territories for sure in 1979 uh, when the war in Knoxville started and then for long beyond 1979. Combined, these two territories would have alone covered everything from the Florida Panhandle west into Mississippi and as far north as in mid-Kentucky, uh, middle of the state of Kentucky, and east over into Virginia. Those combined territories would have had two major cities in the Florida Panhandle, five major markets in Alabama, and two major cities in Tennessee. Southeastern changed its name to Continental. We changed the name about 1985 because we were able to return to Knoxville after everyone who had gone there after 1979 and I sold out to Barnett had failed. We finally went back there in 1985 and had been out of there for six years and it just it sold out again. The first all of our Coliseum shows sold out. It was like we had never left. So uh, after everyone had failed there since 1975, we go back. And after it failed in 79, we go back at 85. And we just uh, jacked that thing up like it had never been, never been hurt at all. Those two territories combined were an extremely large territory, not only in miles, but in major markets as well. There were other things happening around the country in the late 1970s that were going to change things. Now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. by current time frame, we're talking about 76, and we're going to talk briefly about something few people are probably aware of. By the summer of 1977, Southeastern was becoming a force, uh, without a doubt, the best small territory in the world. My father was, was not just spending a lot of time visiting and working there like he did on this program. He's there and wrestling with me as a partner. He was closely watching the success of my company, Southeastern. Wrestling around the country at this time was a constantly changing landscape. Older stars, territory owners, were looking toward retirement and ready to sell their lifetime efforts and territories. So what they had worked for many, many years to develop and they had built and Now their age is catching up to them. They're no longer able to wrestle in the ring, and they're thinking about, uh, you know, what can I get if I sell this? You know, I'll give you some examples. Dory Funk Sr. in Amarillo, uh, Dick the Bruiser in Indianapolis, the Fields Brothers down on the Gulf Coast, Uh, my grandfather, Roy Welch and Nick Gulis in Tennessee. Uh, That's just to name a few. And there was another territory for sale just north of Knoxville, this territory, had been owned for years by Eddie Farhat, the Sheik. It was in this state where my grandfather, Roy Welch, began his wrestling career in 1924. This state had one of the largest populations of any state in America. And That state was Ohio. My father had had his eyes on Ohio for a long time. But my dad didn't outright own his own wrestling company at this time. He'd been extremely successful in his career in building dead territories and making them hugely successful after being dead for many, many years. He had done that from the early 1950s into the 1960s. He no longer ran his own companies, but he was partners in the Memphis Territory with Jerry Jarrett, and he was also partners with Eddie Graham in Florida. He loved my studio show. He loved the format, the talent that I had, the booking and the ideas and what we were doing in Knoxville. He he really was, you know, blown away by some of it. You know, this angle with Ron Wright and the superstars and Don Carson was a perfect example in putting those ads in the newspapers. But uh, I wasn't interested in a Southeastern partner in Knoxville. He was talking to me, he'd like to do something Southeastern, but he really had his eyes on Ohio. He and I had several meetings to discuss the potential of buying Ohio from the Sheik and becoming 50-50 partners in Ohio. The Sheik was headquartered in Detroit. But he only wanted to sell Ohio. He wasn't interested in selling Detroit. I was only 28 years old at this point. The Sheik had a horrible TV show. He had weak talent. He had bad bookers. He had bad business relationships with a lot of different people in a lot of those cities in Ohio. He had a lot of old ideas that were passe and then, you know, that weren't going to work anymore. And he had hotshotted that state for many, many years. The Sheik was a big proponent of a lot of blood, and he he wasn't a fan of lots of wrestling. And it showed in his television programs, and it also showed in the small crowds that he was drawing in the arenas by this point. He had taken the life out of that state by running his business the way he had run it. When I thought about it, Knoxville wasn't that much different uh, when I arrived there. Yet, less than three years later, It was going to be selling out big time. So it was apparent that that had a good formula for success. And if uh, we did the same things that I was doing in Knoxville, the potential from Ohio was through the roof. I mean, uh, how big crowds could we draw in huge cities like Cleveland and uh, Columbus and Cincinnati? So uh, in the fall of 77, my dad and I, we bought Ohio from the Sheik for $100,000. We bought it. But it never happened. Uh, We never ran there at all, a single time. And uh, (laughs) that's a story for another time. And uh, someday we'll jump on that story. But uh, we bought it and never ran it. So when the deal went bad, I turned my attention further south. I bought the Gulf Coast territory that my father had created in 1954. You know, I bought it from my second cousins, the Fields brothers, in December of 1977, about the same time. That we were purchasing Ohio from the Sheik, I wanted to duplicate what I'd been able to do in Knoxville, also wanted to own a territory that operated from the beach to go along with the one I had in the mountains. You know, uh, so had my father and I not backed out of Ohio by early nineteen seventy eight I would have owned two southeastern territories and half of an Ohio territory, and I was just twenty eight years old pretty amazing spot to be in as a young guy like that. I would have controlled basically everything from the Gulf of Mexico and Florida to the great lakes and Ohio. Uh, We are talking about maybe the largest territory in the country, including Vince seniors. And that's now where I'm trying to get back to what this gentleman's question was all about. So now with the size and the power of this type of huge territory, Let's really look at the potential for buying or partnering in the Georgia Territory with Jim Barnett in Atlanta. Atlanta's greatest wrestling value was in the TV station Ted Turner had built, WTBS. It was the first satellite and cable station in America. His television station was seen all across America every Saturday and also around the world via satellite. Uh, Barnett was already in the same position in 1978 with national TV exposure, that Vince Jr. is not going to have for another seven or eight years in the future. If he'd been greedy like Vince Jr., right then, with that just that one station, the WTBS, he could have taken down Vince Jr. and Vince Sr. But uh, there's a world of difference between Jim Barnett and Vince Jr. Barnett had been in power for many years. He was a respected guy, and he respected others in the business. And that was probably the biggest difference between him and Vince Jr. He was a very different type of person. He never took advantage of his powerful television station like Vince Jr. is going to do seven or eight years later when he gets his hand on a national opportunity. And Barnett didn't step on toes. He only ran in places that had no organized wrestling promotions. Barnett ran in the same Ohio cities for years that my father and I had our eyes on a 1977, but we didn't go there. If we had, he would have never run any of those Ohio cities because he was just that type of guy. The Sheik had disappeared and no one was running in Ohio when Jim got his WTBS thing really cranked up. And the sheer power of being on WTBS enabled him to sell out cities where he didn't even have any local television programs. That was unheard of at the time. He was drawing sellout crowds in Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland in the early eighties. Just to highlight the power of WTBS in Atlanta, Vince Jr.'s biggest competition came from WTBS, where WCW was born. Uh, he couldn't compete with it, and he, because he couldn't compete with WCW, he bought it. He couldn't beat him. He bought him, you know. And uh, so, if I had gone there. I would have been in a position to handle things a heck of a lot differently. And uh, between Barnett and I, it would have been a totally different game. I had personal experience with the strength of TBS in the Caribbean, of all places, in the mid-80s. I ran shows in the Grand Cayman Islands in the Caribbean. I took my cruise down there twice a year, and uh, we stayed for two days. Uh, we hang out. We would have dinner together. We would party together. Uh, we would go and wrestle together. And uh, every time we went there, we sold out. It was amazing. Uh, I even took Ric Flair there as the NWA champion on one of those shows. Probably ran 10 shows in the Cayman Islands in the mid-1980s. Uh, everyone on that island watched WTBS every Saturday, as they did everywhere else all over the world. So, in essence, then, to get to, down to the real uh, the crux of the matter here and and, and the man's question, So if Barnett and I had made some kind of deal, I would have had control of everything from the Gulf of Mexico to the Great Lakes. I would have also had WTBS, which was like having a second station in every market in America and in all the markets that I was already in. Plus, we would have also been seen in every market in America because the show went all over the country. Having TBS made you automatically the strongest promoter of wrestling in the world in the early 1980s. That's why Jim Barnett left Australia and came to America, because he wanted to be on WTBS. He wanted to be that powerful man. So we'd done this. We'd had fear of no one in in the wrestling business. No one could have competed with us. WCW became a force for Vince Jr. to have to deal with, obviously. And even after he got his own national TV show, didn't make any difference. Imagine how weak WWF would have been before the national TV that Vince Jr. got compared to WTBS and Atlanta Station. In fact, if we had known what Vince Jr. was planning, he would have been in jeopardy instead of us. If we'd been as greedy as he was, we could have easily taken his huge markets in the Northeast and shut him down like he did to so many others. He was not going to get on national TV until the mid-1980s, and WTBS put us into every market that he had in the early 1980s. With his huge, slow wrestlers, bad matches, weak angles, horrible gimmicks compared to Southern style with great booking, ideas, and endless talent, he would have been easy to put out of business. So basically, Mr. Stewart, not only could we have competed with him and halted his march to dominance in a big way, we could have ended WWF before it even became WWE. It reminds me of that old saying hindsight is 2020. If we had done that, wrestling everywhere would look completely different today, but Jim Barnett, God rest his soul. And I, we would have to uh, live with ourselves and, uh, That would have been difficult for me, and I'm sure
2: it would have been for Jim as well. Jim Barnett. I I think I can get you to agree with me on this. In in the business of pro wrestling, there are a lot of characters. But certainly, based on everything I've heard, Jim Barnett would have to be right up there in the top echelon of guys that are just characters. I'm not even talking about the fact that he was gay. He was just quite the character, wasn't he? He was an amazing human being. He was extremely intelligent.
1: He had a charisma about him he had a way of making friends with everybody and and especially what really always uh, confounded me is he had a tremendous way with women women absolutely loved jim barnett i could never figure that out but uh jim was a great businessman he had a great reputation he had respect and he earned everything he ever got and uh like i said His sights were set on WTBS. He wanted to come to Atlanta. He would have never left Australia had it not been open and available. And uh, it's really amazing uh, what happened with him and what a life he had.
2: Well, you know, one of the things I've always heard is that the, uh, I guess, the ending of the Ole Anderson-Jim Barnett relationship in Atlanta, I guess we're talking about 83, 84-ish, and Jim then subsequently going up to to Connecticut to work for Vince is really one of the things that precipitated Vince taking over the TBS spot. So all that being said, one of the things uh, about Jim Barnett, and you can tell me if I'm wrong in this is that uh, he was, uh, and you kind of alluded to it. He was a guy that he didn't just uh, have influence in the world of pro wrestling. He was a guy that he moved in the circles of uh, political movers and shakers also. Am I correct? Oh, yes. In fact,
1: uh, I used to go and visit Jim. And all of his homes. When I was in Australia, he was in the Chevron Hotel, the uh, penthouse of the Chevron Hotel in uh, King's Cross in Sydney. And uh, he had all these photos of different presidents as inaugurations, and he was in every one of them. He not was sitting up in the top somewhere where you couldn't see him. He was in the first five rows behind those presidents. And I mean, it was one president after another, after another. When he came to Atlanta, I used to go visit him in his penthouse in Atlanta. He had a big, beautiful condominium. And uh, same thing. He had pictures of everybody. And it wasn't only politicians. It was actors as well. He had a great relationship with Rock Hudson and so many big, famous actors in the 60s, 50s and 60s. He was a remarkable human being. And uh Of all the people I ever met in wrestling, I have to agree with you, Jeff. He's probably maybe right at the top or have accomplished what he accomplished. He he left this country uh, having uh, the biggest wrestling organization in the Midwest. He owned Chicago. He owned all the big cities. He was on the Dumont Network. He left this country and went to Australia and built another huge wrestling company on another continent and ends up coming to Atlanta and accomplishing what he did there. He solved the war, the Atlanta
2: war. Amazing man, just an amazing guy. And you know, one of the things that's very underrated, I think, uh, about Jim and his influence uh, that I remember when I uh, first really started taking an analytical look at the business is that Jim knew all these different building uh, managers and owners all around the country. So when Vince was uh, making his, uh, you know, run outside the, uh, the Northeast and going to these different markets, he had Jim working for him and Jim knew all the building owners to contact to get the WWF at the time into those buildings. And I think obviously in the scenario that this gentleman has, has asked you to look at, you know, you could see a scenario where if you and Jim are working side by side as you're going further into the North and maybe into def- different markets, because Jim had been in so many markets, he knew these guys who could get him into those buildings. Not only the buildings, he knew the television people. Sure, yeah, yeah. And that was just as important or or more
1: important in all the cities across the country. He had dealt with so many people, the buildings, the televisions, uh, the politicians in in Chicago and in the big cities. Uh, He was an amazing man. And, uh, you know. Uh, this is a great question. Mr. Stewart asked here, you know, and I, and I really appreciate it. I gotta, gotta just remark to these amazing fans that I, that I seem to have out there that are so knowledgeable and their questions are just so great for this learning tree segment. And, and I really appreciate, uh, having the opportunity to, to answer these type of questions. And, and I hope, uh, Mr. Stewart that, I uh, have answered this one for you properly. And, uh, and thank you very much. All of those people that send me constantly, I get these questions. And uh, I just really look forward to to what's
2: ahead as far as this learning tree is concerned. Okay, Ron, while well, we begin to go for the go home, I would like to remind you that you can become friends with the uh, Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller on Facebook. You simply like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, and automatically you become friends with a legend on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 26, part one with Jeff Van Camp as the horrific Lord Humongous is now available at Tnstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. And Ron, I know you want to speak to the people about that new super uh, Super Studcast.
1: Well, I really enjoyed part one. I I just want to briefly say I, I really, really love part one. Uh Jeff Van Camp is a tremendous athlete, a tremendous guy to this very day, very humble guy. Sometimes it's a little hard to get some things out of him because he doesn't want to brag about himself, but he is a great talent in the ring, and uh, I look forward to doing part two, and I think that uh, people are going to be just as enthusiastic about that as they have been about uh, Jeff Van Camp in the first part. and uh, This is an idea that I came up with that uh, I'm really proud of. Because once I actually saw Jeff Van Camp dressed up as the Lord Humongous, I realized that I had created truly a monster in wrestling. And uh, it's a big thrill for me for fans to be uh, that aren't familiar with this, to be able to see uh, any pictures they can find of the Lord Humongous, uh, either whether it's Sid Vicious or Jeff Van Camp makes no difference. They were both tremendous in
2: that role. Okay, Ron, where are we going
1: next week? Well, we're going to go, to, obviously, to the Coliseum for the second time in 1976. We're going to have a tremendous card there. It was obviously, a critical cage match. It's going to be between Ron Wright and Don Carson. We're going to try to end that feud if we can. We've got a six-man Texas death match uh, with my brother and my dad and I against Austin and Malone and Homer O'Dell we got a World's Lady Championship match on that card, a Mid-American Championship match with a tremendous wrestler. The champion is Dick Steinborn, a fantastic wrestler who's going to be a Southeastern competitor not long down the road. And uh, seven great matches in all. Uh, The next learning tree, I've got another great question, and uh, this one is about booking. It's basically something like, when and why do you finish a worker up? And are houses influenced by workers needing to be changed or something else entirely. Why do you change them up? And, uh, and that's a great one. And I look forward to answering that one too. And I just like, I like to apologize uh, to the fans today. I've had a bad cold and, uh, done my best to make it through here. And, and I hope that uh sweet Lou, when he does the editing is able to piece this back together in a form and fashion, which people can enjoy it. But, uh, Obviously, I want to thank everybody that rides with me every week here, Jeff, from all over the world. You just mentioned one from Japan today, and you know, from all over the world, uh, people seem to really enjoy what we do here, and uh, and I thank them for riding with me every week. And uh, may God bless all of us.
2: Okay, for the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, doing the extra duty this week, Ron, because of your cold. I'm Jeff Bowden. and I will remind you that the Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And until next week, when the ride continues.
0: Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So, full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.